0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You know, diversity in many ways is a lever that you can pull, so to speak. Specifically, you can design hiring to achieve greater diversity, whatever you're aiming for. But
0: simply hiring a diverse talent pool is not enough. This first way of thinking about inclusion, which is fairness and respect. And when you have those things then that enables you to do high performance and to be psychologically safe to speak up. It's creating
1: workplaces where people feel that their voice matters and that they are included in decision-making, that they are included in, in the makeup of an organization. And
2: that's that sense of belonging. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. And today on This Working Life, we're diving back into our special series on cultural diversity and inclusion at work. And we'll provide some solutions and answers to questions we raised in part one, like what's behind the lack of diversity in leadership roles and what can be done about it. To figure out how we can do better when it comes to supporting team members from culturally diverse backgrounds and lift them up to see more diverse leadership, with me is Daisy Oje dominguez Chief People Officer, Vice Media Group.
1: I have dedicated my career ever since I can remember to removing the roadblocks that make workplaces unwelcoming, unequal, and often unsafe uh, for women, people of color, LGBTQ, people with disabilities, and other non-normative people, because I know firsthand the marginalization and loneliness that these employees experience in the
2: workplace. Uh, So in many ways, I've, I've gravitated towards this work ever since I can remember. And Juliet Burke, Professor of Practice and Non-Executive Director at the UNSW Business School. I had become a discrimination lawyer and I had
0: worked on sort of creating policies and doing litigation when people had kind of done the wrong thing. And I felt that that was just too distant from creating organisational change. So for me, I wanted to get my hands dirty, so to speak, and work with people at the coalface and organisations at the coalface to make a difference.
2: To begin, let's hear Daisy's experience of what's been termed covering.
1: In the early part of my career as the only Latina, I come from the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. My father is Dominican, my mother is Puerto Rican. I was not only Latina within the U.S. context, I was often the youngest person in most rooms. I often fell prey to what Kenji Yoshino has coined covering, the practice of downplaying who you are to survive in an organizational context. And I did that because it was very clear to me in the early part of my career that women, what we call people of color here in the United States, which are people of different races and ethnic backgrounds, they were quietly sidelined and marginalized. They weren't part of the the dominant community in these workplaces, and I wasn't part of that dominant community. And I fundamentally believe that you simply can't perform at your best when you're constantly modifying or playing down who you are, including your appearance, your body language, your accents,
2: your abilities, and your communication style. In Daisy's book, Inclusion Revolution, she talks about professional work spaces and how they're formed and who they're created for, and how this impacts workers from diverse backgrounds.
1: You have organizations that are designed with a majority culture in mind, where the professional norms exist and are designed by individuals based on what is acceptable. What is the language that you use? What is the proper attire that you wear? And you start seeing very quickly and very early on that those who, for lack of access and opportunity, may not fit those norms as easily as others have a harder time entering these workplaces, and even if they enter them, they're not always fully accepted. They're not always fully part of the majority culture or even where decision-making happens in organizations. And so what I, what I mean by by workspaces that are not designed for us is workspaces whose cultural norms and expectations and processes and policies are designed to be open and accepting of a certain group
2: and not open and accepting of others. And Daisy, can you tell us about when you were in charge of diversity recruitment at Google?
1: Absolutely. When I joined uh, Google, I was hired to be the company's first global diversity staffing lead. And that meant that I was responsible for an organization that was hiring upwards of 500 to 700 individuals a week. And we put together a plan that was data-driven, research-driven, bold and ostentatious in the, in the new, what we call the reimagining of hiring for Google. And we presented it, and for hours and hours, we were answering questions about whether this was going to work, whether this was going to be scalable enough, and very clearly being pushed on, this is not going to solve our dilemma of bringing more Black Hispanic engineers and and women to the workplace. And I kept on being asked, how are you solving for the root cause? What is the root cause of our problem? Why can't we just simply recruit more Black and Hispanic and women engineers And I recall this moment as a moment where I I say I lost my mind um, because I was so tired, so exhausted that I could no longer deliver an answer that was politically safe and, and respectful. And I I simply I paused and then I said racism. And in order to achieve different outcomes, we have to rebuild it from scratch. And it needs to be done with an anti-racist lens so that we are interviewing, that we are accessing, that we are sourcing, that we are assessing talent with a dramatically different lens. The room went light.
2: And just for you in that moment, how did you feel, Daisy?
1: Oh, absolutely. Exhausted, a bit heartbroken and defeated.
2: All right, well, let's go now to you, Juliet, to pick up on this sentiment. What are your thoughts on this scenario from an Australian perspective, Juliet?
0: I think what Daisy's saying has strong resonance for us in Australia across multiple dimensions of diversity. And that is that structures and behaviours, people don't often realise how much they are a reflection of what was once the status quo. And that's now changing. And and what Daisy does is try to speak truth to power. And that's very uncomfortable. Partly uncomfortable because people want to think of themselves as good people and also potentially because they're just blind to what's going on, to to their own privilege within that situation. So I I think it has strong resonance for us and and it's probably good learnings for us too.
2: Do you think that we have enough cultural competency or intelligence when it comes to other people in our teams?
0: Unfortunately, I don't think you would say Australian leaders are the best in class at being culturally intelligent. And not because we're bad people, but just our circumstance is somewhat different. You know, we are an island You know, we're not like we're living in Europe and we have other countries just on our borders. So we don't have that sort of fluidity. We're not really a multilingual country in the sense that we have English as the main language, whilst other people might speak languages from their own heritage. It's not like we're living in Europe where everyone speaks four languages quite fluently. And we do kind of expect that when people come to Australia, then they will just absorb the Australian culture here. So we don't really have a mentality, which is actually there are amazing things that we could learn from other cultures and incorporate them into our own, not to the extent that others do. So I would say there's probably three things that we could do better at. Let me put it that way. One is in relation to the drive, the motivation to really want to understand deeply different cultures rather than understanding them superficially and expecting them to just integrate. So, first is motivation. Second is actual information. So, actually knowing stuff about different cultures that we interact with regularly. So, knowing about their their politics, their history, their stories, their, their ways of behaving, you know, really so that you could operate fluidly in that context and in your own context. And the last one is that one of fluidity and adaptation. So, if you know what it is to demonstrate respect in Japan and respect in Australia, then you're able to do that. You're able to move between those different cultures. So the first is just motivation, the second is information, and the third is adaptation. And I'm not sure that we're as good as we could be on those.
2: Daisy, what's your take on cultural intelligence? Oh my goodness, I think that is so brilliant and
1: so necessary in organisations. I often say to our leaders and our managers, you know, well-educated, well-intentioned and even open-minded people often move along their lives severely underestimating the impact of their racialized actions and privilege and spending the time to build your cultural intelligence and your understanding not just about how race impacts your decisions but you know how difference it impacts your decisions and i think that the the point that you're making is quite brilliant regarding immigrants entering you know navigating workplaces and as an as an immigrant i know what 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 that feels like and that looks like obviously i was a, a caribbean immigrant in the in the united states entering spaces that that you know are somewhat welcoming, but not quite. Welcoming, and I do fundamentally believe that for all of us, whether you're a manager, a leader, or an indi- individual contributor in an organization, there's so much value in in really reflecting on how you open space for people, how you create an opportunity for others to express their opinions, um, how you amplify others in an organization who may not have the same privilege or access or Positional privilege, for example, I'm in the C-suite, I'm an executive, and I'm often in meetings where young people and more junior people feel concerned or worried about raising their hands. And I make it an effort to make sure that they feel there's a safe space to speak and, and that when they do, I make it a point as a leader to credential them you know and it's simple you can just say you know in the tech world the expression is plus one right let me plus one what you just said cuz it's a it's an important topic it can simply be saying that's a that's a really interesting point and you know we might want to work on it a, a bit but you know anita thank you for 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 sharing it and let's let's work on it lift up individuals credential them in a way that others now see them differently and that frankly gives those individuals that sense of freedom and you know and just oof, I am, I'm welcomed, I'm seen, I can contribute here to my fullest
2: capacity. And Daisy, you express in your book that the urgency for more diverse and inclusive teams and leadership is actually clear, but it's the roadmap that's not. So can you tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. You know, we have seen over the years in America and elsewhere, these very simple frameworks that have been developed of what diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, what that looks like in organizations. You know, you hire a chief diversity officer, you launch employee resource groups, you provide some training, often just, you know, unconscious bias training and leave it at that. You focus on diversity recruitment teams. These are what I call just, you know, well-cured curated performances by organizations to tell everybody what they're working on. But they're they're not moments of truly thinking about what are the outcomes that we want to achieve as an organization that are different from what we've been achieving for the last five, 10 plus years as a company. What are the questions we should be asking that are different than the questions we've been asking before? You know, and over the years, I have tested and developed different models for dismantling inequities across organizations. And what I have seen work is not necessarily always leaning on the silver bullets or the shortcuts. What I've learned is that best practice and research are starting points. But a formula that I've been using in the last couple of years is reflect, visualize, act, and persist. It's a generative formula and it really is that reflect and visualize are those two stages where I call building your readiness to do this work. Reflecting is where you have you know where you start getting clear on what you and others are experiencing around you, how you experience work, the structural causes or the root causes of your ability or inability to hire and retain a certain segment of the workforce. Visualizing is what I you know, it's my less corporate, you know, nomenclature for what we call in corporate America, you know, building your strategic roadmap, you know, your KPIs, your milestones. Visualizing is where you can think about what can be possible for your organization, what does that look like and what would that require of you as a person, as a contributor to the culture of an organization. And act is is when you get things done, right? Knowledge is is a good starting point, but action is really where change happens and where you get to test and iterate what works and what doesn't. And the last step is persist because obstacles will appear, (coughs) resistance will take place, people will get tired of doing this work. But I really do fundamentally believe that some of our biggest opportunities are reducing those obstacles for others to achieve and creating creating workplaces that truly, truly work for everyone.
2: And Juliette, what are your thoughts on this formula? I think it's a great formula.
0: I think that makes sense. I would then want to bring it down to some of those micro behaviours that Daisy was referring to before. And I think Where my focus has been most recently is looking at how leaders and peers within teams enact behaviours that are inclusive. So I think we've got to have a strategy at an organisational level, absolutely. But that strategy can be undone by micro behaviours. So for example, acknowledgement and endorsement. I mean, that certainly came up in my PhD research, where what I saw in groups was that those people who were more similar to the group, so if you have someone in the team who's more similar to yourself, you are more likely to give them that public acknowledgement or that endorsement, you know, as Lisa said, which is basically me putting my brand behind yours, I'm underscoring your point of view. And it's not that I don't do it at all to people who are different, it's just that there's a differential And that is that I'm three times less likely to do it to someone who's different. And so your voice feels weakened in that moment. And you're Mm -hmm. wondering, why am I not getting it across as clearly as someone else? I think sometimes we don't even notice, not only that we're not doing it, but the person who's experiencing it can't quite put their Mm -hmm. finger on what happened in that meeting just then? Why don't I feel that my voice was as clear as the others and not realising acknowledgement and endorsement are two of the micro behaviours that are really powerful in meetings and occur with an unequal distribution between people who are similar to you and different.
2: So, Juliette, what can people do to cultivate this? Is it being explicit and asking peers for their support or is it something systemic?
0: Well, I think it's sort of this power of the peer It is systemic. It's something that happens all the time. But I think, first of all, it's almost like doing a self-audit of yourself, looking at the people who are around you and thinking, who are the people that I tend to lean into a little bit more? And leaning into looks like those small behaviors of acknowledgement and endorsement and giving extra information to them or person that you do a little bit of banter with, you know, give them the space to vent, ask them out for a coffee, or the person that you say, hey, come sit next to me, do a little bit of a self-audit and really hold your feet to the fire to say, am I doing that equally to everyone in the team? And what would be the characteristics of those people who I'm not doing it with? And then to say, and it's really to Daisy's act, actually rebalance that. If you want that team to be a high-performing team, you need to make sure that everyone's included and peers have the ability to do that by leaning in and doing it to someone else. If you're the minority, then actually you can kickstart that process. If you lean into someone else and you give them a bit of information or you say, let's go and have a coffee, then you load the dice to kickstart a reciprocal behavior and that is that they'll start doing it to you. So it's not passively waiting for it to happen. That is how you take control of your own experience.
2: Now, one word we've been hearing a lot about recently is the word belonging. So Daisy, can you tell me about the importance of this in your eyes? Oh,
1: absolutely. I like to think of belonging as the higher level of you know experience in, a, in the workplace. We've been talking for quite some years around diversity, inclusion, psychological safety, belonging, it's possible for people to be at an important meeting, even to be speaking up and still to not feel that people like them belong. And belonging means this is a place where I can be authentic, where I matter, where I am essential to the team. In other words, somewhere where I can thrive, And that is increasingly an an area, and and you're absolutely right, a word that's being used because we have focused so heavily on diversity for years and then inclusion. But, you know, diversity in many ways is a lever that you can pull, so to speak. Specifically, you can design hiring to achieve greater diversity, whatever you're aiming for. But simply hiring a diverse talent pool is not enough. It's creating workplaces where people feel that their voice matters and that they are included in decision-making, that they are included in, in the makeup of an organization. And that's that sense of belonging.
0: The feeling of inclusion has three levels to it. The foundational level of inclusion is you just participate. That's just equity, fairness, courtesy. Everyone just gets a chance to play on that field, to you know work at Google or Vice Media, wherever it is, or Radio National. The second level which is probably closer to the heartland that Daisy was talking about, is a feeling of being valued and a feeling of connectivity with other people. And you might wrap that up in a feeling of belonging, but it is a heartland piece, but it builds on this first way of thinking about inclusion, which is fairness and respect. And when you have those things, then that enables you to do high performance and to be psychologically safe to speak up.
2: Now, if I'm listening to this and thinking as a leader, mm, why should I really care about this? Juliet, what would you say the benefits of more inclusive leadership are?
0: Oh, they're, they're absolutely quantifiable. So the more a person is different from the norm, the more the leader can influence their experience of fairness and respect, value and belonging, inspiration and confidence. So up to seventy percent. So a leader makes up to a seventy percent difference as to whether an individual feels included, makes up to the numbers are always around 20 25% difference in relation to the quality of decisions that are made in that group, whether the team behaves collaboratively. And the last one is they make a material difference to the bottom line of an organisation. So you get greater level of innovative ideas, six times more likely to be adaptive, twice as likely to meet or exceed financial targets.
2: It's a huge impact. And how important are metrics then? What gets measured gets done.
1: If you are in an organization where you are tracking your revenue as closely as you are tracking your attraction and retention of talent,
0: then the outcomes will be fair and consistent across the board. I also agree that you need the metrics and Daisy's right, what gets measured gets done. What I would add, what I would plus one to Daisy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <you. learning> fast, <laughs> <yeah>.
0: <laughs> Is that you need those metrics to be transparent across the organisation so mm-hmm. that everyone can see what's going on. And then those metrics are tied to performance. So wanting to make sure that the retention of staff is brought home to the leader of that area, rather than having those metrics just sitting there and no one really accountable for them. I remember years ago, there was a place I was working in that, that had metrics like that, but the manager on the ground was not responsible. It was sort of all the way up the line. And so the manager on the ground didn't feel that it was really anything to do with them. It was going to hit home to someone else. So transparency and accountability is my plus one here.
2: And building on that, do you have any advice or first step that people can take towards this?
1: My advice is often just start the conversation. You know, I often ask managers to look at their calendars and leaders and say, what does your calendar look like? Who are you spending time with? Mm. What are you focusing on? What are you spending your energy on? You know, nine out of 10 times, they'll look around and they'll see that they're spending time with the exact same people, having the exact same conversations, (laughs) delivering the exact same outcomes. And a first step is to actually shake things up and say, this week, I am going to meet with three people on my team that I never talked to Mm or that I don't engage with. And I am going to get to know them. I am going to take them out for coffee and, and try and build relationship with them and connect with them in a different way. Because from those conversations is where trust and relationship get built. And it's also where you gain data and information on experiences that are unknown to you. And sometimes those conversations can be uncomfortable, but it should not be a crippling feeling. It can be an opportunity for growth, for relationship building and for connection in a way that makes work more meaningful
0: for everyone.
2: Juliet, got a plus one? (laughs) Yeah, I
0: do have a plus one because of course I love that. Go and speak to people, broaden your network and broaden Mm -hmm. your information source. See the world through a different eye. And I would also say, seek feedback from people Mm -hmm. who you trust and are close to you. The people who will really talk straight, you know, you always interrupt. You always explain when there's no need to explain because the knowledge is always there. Get it straight from someone and then, you know, reflect on, well, how do I do that? You know, am, am I always jumping in too fast? Am I always discounting what that person says? And how am I doing that? So I guess my plus one is just to get feedback from people who know you well and who are who don't fear ruffling of feathers.
2: Thanks to my guests, Daisy Oje dominguez Chief People Officer, Vice Media Group, and Juliet Burke, Professor of Practice and Non-Executive Director at the UNSW Business School. And remember, if you haven't heard part one, where we hear personal stories of feeling invisible and ask why we don't see enough diversity in leadership roles, just scroll back through our podcast feed. And if you love our show and know someone who could benefit from hearing our stories, please share us around, because if we're going to change the world of work for the better, we need to reach as many ears as possible. This Working Life is produced by Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. And until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.